Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Dr. Vanessa Carey, is the co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health. This is an international NGO that works in five sub-Saharan African countries to bolster the education of medical professionals. Dr. Carey came to national attention in 2004 when she introduced her father, John Carey, at the Democratic National Convention, and she describes how her interest in global health issues was sparked by a trip to Vietnam many years ago with her father. We kick off discussing the newest Ebola outbreak in the DRC, and this is a truly alarming one for the fact that it is occurring in a region of the DRC that is very much a hot conflict zone. We then have a broader conversation about the challenge of strengthening health systems in poorer countries, and we, of course, discuss the specific work of Seed Global Health. If you are a global health and development nerd, and I know many of you are, I think you'll very much appreciate this episode. And speaking of global development, before we begin this episode, I want to let you all know of an exciting new content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. For the next several months, we'll be featuring from time to time experts from the Global Development Institute who will discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I am very excited to see what this content partnership will bring, so stay tuned. For now, here is my conversation with Dr. Vanessa Carey. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The challenge of any outbreak in a resource-limited setting in general is just that you often don't have enough human resources and enough surveillance infrastructure in place to be able to recognize and contain the outbreak immediately. At least that's always the concern. Um, And I think when you get into a conflict setting, conflict settings are long known for having an inability to respond appropriately to health crises, whether we're talking about an Ebola outbreak or if we're talking about non-communicable disease and things that we don't necessarily think of as traditional, you know, immediate killers, but are actually huge burdens of disease in these places in the world, maternal child health, under five mortality, all of these things get profoundly impacted in conflict areas. And so you certainly worry about the acute phase of a response to something like Ebola when you don't have freedom of movement of healthcare workers. People are worrying about their own safety. 
patients are worrying about their safety and ability to go out um, to seek treatment and care. But I always just worry about it long-term as well because we know that conflict-affected areas are actually have higher rates of death and disability in the decade you know, after a conflict uh, than they do in the conflict itself. And so if you think about a place that's been mired by conflict for years, you can imagine how exponential that impact is. And what it fundamentally comes down to is an absence of a working health system, whether it's infrastructure or people and skilled health professionals to be able to help address disease burden. And so in something like Ebola, where you do need a rapid and well-coordinated response, it's always very worrying about having it in a conflict-affected area, especially when you're dealing with politics and borders and things like that. And in that previous outbreak in the DRC, you know, it was was challenging in and of itself. I mean, I was on you know, press calls with the, the World Health Organization, and they're talking about having to get vaccines out to these remote villages where, you know, had to take like mm-hmm. um, a motorbike ride for hours and hours and hours just to get to these villages with, with a new vaccine. Um, but even that kind of like those logistical challenges seem to be even more profoundly compounded uh, when, when this conflict is taking place in, in a conflict zone and also in a border region. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it, there's a twofold issue here. One, just the conflict in and of itself. So you have, not only do you have bystanders and the basic population exposed, but you have, um, you, know, you will have ultimately end up having the, the conflicting forces will also be highly exposed and they tend to have more movement and none of it is contained. It tends to all be more, um, you know, indescript and, and hidden. And I think that, so there's always a huge risk in a conflict area, especially when there's movement of populations between more remote areas and into any kind of urban setting. That's what we worry about a lot. But the cross-border politics makes it incredibly complicated also because you have um, two different governing states that now need to work together in addition to sort of non-governance actors that are involved in this as well. And so it really is a recipe for a huge, um, you know, for, for things to go undetected and to expand rapidly. It's, it's a very concerning situation. Yeah, I know uh, without, you have. Without question. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that, that SEED has, has operations in Uganda, and presumably you have, you have lots mm-hmm. of colleagues uh, there. I mean, at mm-hmm. the moment we're speaking, there hasn't been any confirmed cases uh, over the border. I, I know they're sort of screening refugees that have registered uh, across the border, but are, are you sort of hearing anything from your colleagues in Uganda? So, I mean, we haven't heard that. We're not directly, we're near the borders, but we're not directly working in the refugee camps there, um, which is obviously the highest risk at this point. But I think that um, one of the things, Uganda has a lot of experience detecting hemorrhagic fevers and containing them. So um, that experience and that kind of infrastructure and system will allow Uganda to respond rapidly, quickly, and I think effectively to any outbreaks of disease within its border. Um, and that reflects training and education and experience. And I think, um, you know, with the disease that has it, which to me shows the power and importance of having, again, these skilled workforce you need to address these issues. We haven't heard anything about it. Traditionally, when there have been hemorrhagic fever outbreaks in the country, you know, there's a very rapid um, message that goes around the country. People prepare themselves, protocols go into place. And, um, but I think for now, people are just watching the border carefully, at least from my understanding. So you referred to this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering, um, 
what an outbreak uh, like Ebola or, or other sort of you know, uh, contagious diseases tell you about the strengths or weaknesses of, of health systems, uh, particularly in, in the regions in, in which uh, seed operates? Um, well, I think that the ability of a health system to both detect and then also respond to a any kind of outbreak or emergency um, is really a reflection of how well trained and and how well invested that health system is because you there are so many different pieces that go into uh, protecting a population against an outbreak. It's not only being able to recognize the uh, kind of series of symptoms that become a um, flag bearer of a disease or a disease of concern, but then it's being able to know what the protocols are, quarantining, isolating, treating people appropriately with supportive care, but then being able to put the preventative measures in place that are needed to protect the rest of the population and to be able to do, you know, a sophisticated system of um, screening and surveillance around a country or an at-risk region. And all of that reflects preparedness, planning, and reflects um, a level of kind of training and investment in the health system that I think is really important. While outbreaks, I think, get a lot of news because they're scary and they certainly can spread like wildfire and affect, you know, tens of thousands the way they did, for example, in West Africa. We can't forget that there is actually sort of a daily epidemic happening in many other diseases around the world. 99% of maternal mortality is happening in lower resource countries around the world. And the vast majority of it is happening at the 48 hours around labor and delivery. You have some of the highest levels of um, malignancy and non-communicable disease mortality happening in resource-limited countries around the world. And cardiovascular disease is now the leading killer worldwide. These are preventable things that can be managed over time. So there's a huge amount of healthcare that we don't think of as an epidemic because maybe people don't die within 48 hours before our eyes, but they're killing people by the hundreds of thousands annually in ways that we're not addressing or taking care of appropriately. And that, to me, is a reflection of a breakdown of a health systems, you know, on a global scale in a number of countries. For SEED, we feel that people are critical to helping stem that degree of death and, and suffering in these countries. And the World Health Organization has actually shown that, or it's, it's you know, put forth the evidence that 83 countries around the world have critical shortages of doctors, nurses, and midwives that are contributing to this kind of, to the, the vast amount of death and disability happening in these parts of the world. And so we really believe that um, it's critically important to be investing in health systems in order to provide countries with the ability to not only protect their population, but to actually invest in a number of different things that these countries want, like economic growth, or personal and national security. Um, but for us, it's, it starts at the health system and it starts with the people who are the eyes, ears, and strategists for those health systems. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was excited to speak with you because SEED, I think, is is a good manifestation of a trend that you know we've been seeing in global health over the last you know fifteen years, in which uh, more and more often the focus has shifted from a specific disease like AIDS, TB, or, or malaria to strengthening of of health systems as a whole. I'm sort of interested in in learning first, uh, like the origin story of of SEED. How did it start, and 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 how did you join? So I helped found Seed five years ago, and it was really, I think, a reflection of 
having seen many places around the world that suffered from dire poverty and terrible health and watching people fly in, deliver care and leave, but never actually meaningfully always invest in the places um, that they were visiting and never really empowering these countries to be self-sufficient and stronger and able to really have the kind of agency and autonomy they wanted to care for themselves. And so SEED was born to harness the vast energy in being involved in global health that we saw in the United States and put it into a meaningful program where people's energies and efforts could build on one another year after year after year. And so we did this with this idea that if we could help partner with the institutions in the countries where we work to help train a rising generation of doctors, nurses, midwives who can not only care for their population, but who can teach their own successors and teach across the health system, strengthening healthcare workers of every sector and become agents of change in their own country, that could be a really powerful uh, sort of, uh, you know, a powerful impact. And it, it started on a very personal level. I went to Vietnam when I was 14 and really saw poverty at a scale that I had never seen before. And it just stuck with me. Was that and about so the time that, you, the, that your dad went with uh, Senator McCain as part of the... It was during that yeah. time yeah, when yeah, they that, were normalizing that, yeah, relations. Yeah, yeah. So my dad took me with him. And I was just really struck by what I saw. And really, I just carried it with me into my training and into medical school. And then spent time working in Sub-Saharan Africa when I was in medical school and in residency. And that's when I started to witness the fact that there was a fly-in, fly-out mentality. There wasn't something about really partnering for change. Where did you train? And I just like where were you doing your residency? I, yeah, so I trained. I did my residency and fellowship at Mass General Hospital, and I'm still a physician there. Okay. Um, but in, so in Sub-Saharan they, Africa, where, yeah, where did they have a, a program? Oh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah. no. So Mass General has a partnership. Um, so I worked with Partners in Health in Rwanda, mm-hmm. and then. Mass General has a very strong partnership in southwestern Uganda with the Umbrella University of Science and Technology. And so I spent some time working there, and it was around that time that we decided to start SEED. And so we started SEED, and we have continued to have a strong partnership with Mass General with Umbrara, but with 39 other sites in five countries in Africa. So so in those sort of five years since, um, or, or I should even say since the time that, that you first uh, started practicing medicine in um, Rwanda and in Uganda, what sort of structural changes have you seen to how those countries and perhaps the international community more broadly approach um, issues of, of healthcare and issues of strengthening healthcare systems? So I think it's a great question, Uh, and it's a complicated one because pendulums swing, and I think it depends on who you're talking about being involved in these countries. I think there's been a real movement among the global health community to start um, providing very long-term, far-horizon investments where we're no longer looking for these panacea fixes in a year, but we're saying, let's get ourselves in 10 years to the correct deep and profound fix that we need uh, in these countries and to be able to really build up these health systems and make the investments that are needed. And I think the global health community and our academic partners are really taking that viewpoint, which is a longer term, very partnered, um, what are the priorities and needs of the countries where we work and how do we help get ourselves, um, you know, to those kind of goals. I think that, you know, Countries and bilaterals have always been traditionally huge sources of funding for global health. And in recent years, there has been 
I think, a retreat as politics and mandates change and countries' administrations change. There's been a retreat um, in some of the global health funding coming from countries and that kind of leadership and partnership. We've certainly seen it in the United States, and we've spent the last decade making extraordinary investments in global health between the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief or PEPFAR, which has put in billions of dollars into the fight against HIV-AIDS, and really demonstrated the power of what what investments in global health can do. We are seeing you know, deaths from HIV decline. We are seeing the possibility, finally, of a generation of children that will not have HIV. We're seeing a considerable decrease in the number of infections among children. We're seeing people live longer. That's a reflection of remarkable investments in global health that was really led by the United States, and I think it changed people's ideas of what is possible um, in health if, if you set your mind to it. And I think that we need to be putting more into that. One of the things that I think has been a real um, issue is the fact that people don't understand how important health is to everything we seek to achieve. There's both microeconomic data and macroeconomic data showing that investments in health actually lead to economic growth. We know the countries that have higher life expectancy have higher GDP. We know that the East Asian countries made investments in health, intentional investments in health, in the decade before you saw their huge economic booms. Yeah, I mean, you, you referenced Vietnam, you know, when you were 14 years old. I, I presume you're probably in, in your, like, 40s now. So, I mean, that, that's, that's proof Thanks. right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It is. I mean, Vietnam's an amazing example of what a country could do. We also know that, you know, on a microeconomic level, households that lose their main breadwinner to HIV, for example, two-thirds of those households will end up having an 80% decrease in income. You end up having 40 60% have to move to cheaper housing, 40% lose access to running water, and you have up to 20% of those children that don't get to go to school anymore. The impacts are real. And so, but the failure to make the connectivity of health as a fundamental prerequisite to either economic growth or we now know to national security, countries that receive PEPFAR funds actually on several peace indices to have 40%, you know, do 40% better in governance, increase peace, increase social cohesion. That yeah, there, there's that, the there's like study. a correlation between receiving PEPFAR funds and being more peaceful. That's interesting. I, yep. I, I hadn't seen that. Yep. And better mm -hmm. governance in countries and better mm -hmm. social cohesion. So one of my fellows, Ben Gupta, who I worked with, actually did a very similar study that he just published about a year ago um, that showed the same thing, that studies that countries who receive high levels of health aid, they experience higher quality governance, lower degrees of corruption, and a more vibrant civil society. So we should be investing in understanding that we are actually part of a network that we can't turn our back from. And at a time where... You know, we are actually beginning to heat, hit the kind of the peak and the precipice of the ability to tackle and conquer some of these things we're retreating. Mm -hmm. And that just seems like a waste of 30 years of profound investments. And that's what we're trying to do at SEED is actually create the human capital manpower and leaders in these countries who can become the advocates and agents of change. And we've done that. We've helped train the uh, Minister of State for Primary Care in Uganda, for example, and heads of departments at institutions. We've begun to yes, see... Yes, well, actually, can, can you just kind of walk me through, like, yeah. how your training program works? You have a doctor or, or a nurse or, or some professional, um, presumably, like, in the United States, and, and they take, like, residence in, in, in a hospital or a, or a teaching facility in one of your the countries in which you operate? 
So the model by which CEED has worked with for the last five years is that we have taken uh, health professionals from the United States and embedded them as faculty for a minimum of one academic year in our partner sites. We've worked in Tanzania, Malawi, Uganda, Swaziland, Zambia, and Liberia. And we have helped train over 13,700 doctors, nurses, and midwives over the last five years. But it's, um, and the idea is that by providing this kind of faculty mentorship that isn't just happening in the classroom, but it's actually happening in the hospitals and in the context of patient care, which is very different than what other people and other organizations have done, we're beginning to transform what the level of care looks like. And what that does is it provides an avenue forward for these healthcare providers to understand they can have an impact even in the absence of resources, that they can tackle heart failure, kidney disease, in addition to TB, HIV, and malaria, and to help identify the problems that exist in these systems and begin to create the solutions or advocate for the changes that are needed to improve the system. To give an example, we trained a uh, medical student who learned neonatal resuscitation. When he something my um, my was, own daughter needed upon birth. Oh my gosh! Yeah, sorry. I'm I'm assuming she's okay. Yeah, no, but... she, she she she's okay. She's okay. My my other son was was born in the front seat of our car, and I actually wrote a piece in the Washington Post about it, uh, making the link to uh, frontline health workers in less developed countries, and and how sort of birth is 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 dangerous in so many places. Birth is really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, it, and then the vast majority of, of death for mothers and for children, neonates, is around the time of labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also possible with the appropriate frontline healthcare workers and the referral base of healthcare professionals to support them and continuously train and teach them, as well as be the referral base when there's a problem. The system can actually work well, and mm-hmm. we've seen that. So the, the Ali Asgar ended up being on a rotation by himself a couple weeks after he trained with one of our physicians and saw a baby that wasn't breathing. And everybody walked past and said, the baby's dead. And Ali Asgar said, there's protocol for this. Ended up recognizing the child was still alive, resuscitated the child. And with just knowledge, no additional equipment was able to transform this one kid's life. Hmm. He then went on to organize a training for 200 others at his institution and then started organizing trainings around the entire country. So there's a real impact that has gone you know, that that carries off beyond Ali Asgar in terms of the teaching and training. We've seen this. We helped open the doors of a teaching hospital in Uganda for midwifery. We provided 50% of the faculty for that school five years ago. School could not have opened its doors or gotten its accreditation without us. Five years later, they've graduated their first class of midwives who've all stayed in northern Uganda in areas still recovering from conflict 10 years ago as we go back to the beginning of our conversation and are trying to rebuild from this conflict. The 34 people who graduated, I think it's around 34, 32, somewhere in that range, they've all stayed up north, though, and are continuing to provide care and being invested in continuing training others uh, within the community in this part of the country. And that's the kind of lasting impact. It took us five years to get there. But the profound change that will happen from having 34 skilled midwives out in the community delivering care and teaching is profound and will have a lasting legacy for years. We're about systems change. We're about healthcare delivery. And we're about to really fundamentally partnering with the countries where we work to think through what is needed, what are the solutions, and how do we build the long-term skill capacity needed to be self-sustaining. So what we fully believe in the importance of frontline healthcare workers and community health workers, but we also believe you have to support them. 
with a referral base, the network, and the support they need to continue doing their work in the right way. It's not fair to ask them to deal with cerebral area, you know, which is very complicated, for example. There needs to be a system that's whole and intact uh, and sustainable. And that's where SEED is really invested and will continue to go. SEED is about to launch its new strategy for the next five years, 2019. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what, what's, what's next? I mean, it seems like you, you kind of have, you know, this kind of part one down, which is, you know, training people on, on the ground. Um, what, 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 what's like the next, next iteration of your kind of theory of change? SEED has enjoyed a really strong partnership with the USB score for the last five years that was a great public-private partnership where we could leverage an existing infrastructure, the Peace Corps, that sends up to 8,000 Americans abroad a year in order to mobilize and send U.S. health professionals as faculty. It allowed us to, in a very cost-effective way, send these Americans abroad for a year with language training, safety, security, all the things that were in place in partnership uh, with the Peace Corps because they were already in place for the Peace Corps. And SEED provided all the technical expertise around the selection, placement, uh, and support of these health professionals in the sites and to support the sites where we were working. Um, and the partnership with, our Peace, with the Peace Corps is coming to a close this September. And so SEED is very committed to continuing this work in as many places as we can because we're losing the in-kind infrastructure that we were able to leverage with the Peace Corps and double down on the U.S. investments that were already happening in health, we're going to have to rebuild our own infrastructure. And so we're going to be diving very deep in uh, Malawi and Uganda and continuing to pilot work in Swaziland and uh, Zambia to continue this mission of really focusing on training a rising generation of healthcare providers and professionals who can become agents of change in their country and caregivers and educators. Is there we any, do this through can I ask, Is there like yeah? any sense that other entities will step up where this partnership with the United States has left? Like it, like, we our, think like, so because we're yeah. going to ask them to and continue. No one's going to step in immediately. Mm-hmm. It's a real loss. And a couple of our partner sites, we've been working at 39 sites in five countries. And a very painful part for all of us in this partnership has been that we're not going to be able to sustain that scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think this is a trend that, that you're seeing in, in a lot of NGOs working around the world that had previously robust partnerships with the United States for various uh, reasons, policy decisions made in Washington yes. are, are undermining their ability to, to operate. And I think it's short-sighted because I think a lot of progress will be lost. And the problem is it doesn't hurt us as a partner. It really, it, it's painful to our, I mean, it hurts us, yes, but the people who really get hurt are the partners and places that we're working. And we've had to fight really hard to try to come up with the best possible drawdown and strategic plans we can. But we're really excited about the fact that we will be able to dive very deep in a couple of partner countries and to really build out this model that we've heard through this last strategic planning process is very different from the approach many others take and has had a profound impact in the places and the countries where we work. And one of the things we're really proud of is that our partners have all spoken about the depth of our partnership, our commitment to long-term and the impact that it's had and in the sites where we've been working. And so we're looking forward to continuing that. We'll be building on three pillars, education. So enhancing the education and the quality of education uh, and and that is delivered in these sites um, in medicine, nursing, midwifery, 
we're also going to continue the piece of clinical practice and really changing practice improvement in these hospitals because it's one thing to teach in a classroom. It's another thing to actually change the quality of care that's delivered. And medicine and nursing are some of the last great apprenticeships where you can know everything you want on a blackboard, but when you're presented with that patient in the middle of the night for the first time, and I speak from experience of my first night on calls of intern, suddenly it doesn't all make sense because the patient doesn't just have atrial fibrillation and hypertension and failing kidneys. They have all three at once. And sometimes what you need to do for them is in competition. And so having the kind of mentorship of people who've seen those cases before and can provide the training and experience and kind of quality improvement aspect is a really profound point of impact in these countries that we have found is not only almost unique to us, but is is made a huge difference to our partners in terms of the health outcomes and in terms of the satisfaction of the providers because they can understand they can actually do something. And then our third big pillar is going to be policy because many organizations do policy and policy improvement and do policy assessments, but they aren't actually doing the work on the ground. And many organizations are doing work on the ground, but then they're not taking their experience and knowledge and linking it to policy. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be engaging across that spectrum now using evidence-based um set of approach to policy and advocacy to help partner with governments to provide a context for healthcare, um, health system strengthening and healthcare workforce that is actually going to be uh, hopefully more um, nurturing and and uh, leveraging. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Carey, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was fascinating. No, thank you so, so much. Um, so it was great. To, it was great to speak. Thanks for your time. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Carey. That was great. That was a wonky, good, in-depth discussion about the value and necessity of strengthening health systems and, and the importance of educating medical professionals to that end. And as always, big, big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. Uh, It really helps grow the audience and growing the audience makes this a more sustainable enterprise. So do your part, please, and leave a review telling the world what you think about this podcast. I I so appreciate it. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.